Hello, and welcome to Fiduciary Talk, brought to you by FI360. I'm Blaine Aiken, Executive Chairman of FI360, and I'm joined here by Dwayne Thompson, our Senior Policy Analyst in Washington. Welcome, Dwayne. Thanks, Blaine. It's good to be here. Well, today we're going to take a look at the DOL's new fiduciary rule, but from a slightly different perspective. Up to this point, most of the webcasts and press reports on the rule have covered compliance with the DOL rule itself, and not really with how the rule is with existing regulations covering financial advisors under, say, insurance and securities laws. So I suspect that, there, uh, that as firms begin to develop their internal supervisory requirements, they will have to look at this aspect of uh, when they advise plans or plan participants and IRAs. But, Dwayne, can you give us a, uh, a rundown on what are some of the key requirements that advisors are going to have to keep in mind going forward? Thanks, Blaine. I'm happy to do that at, at the risk of uh, avoiding the weeds because this can uh, end up being a complicated subject, as you, you can imagine. But uh, uh, just to look at it from a high-level perspective, actually from a fiduciary perspective, I think there's two key points to keep in mind. And that is uh, we all know that the fiduciary duty has a duty of loyalty and a duty of care. And uh, certainly the duty of loyalty in terms of press coverage and webcasts and so forth, uh, i.e. putting the client's interest ahead of your own and so forth, that's, that's been the focus. And that is certainly the, the critical piece, I, I think, and, and the controversy that's, that's surrounded the whole the whole debate over the new rule, but uh, I think what's gotten sort of overlooked in, in the whole process is the, the prudence standard under ERISA and what is going to be the impact of ERISA's higher prudence standard on the other suitability requirements that are currently in place uh, for advisors who are registered under insurance, state insurance laws, who uh, are uh, subject to compliance by FINRA's uh, detailed rules, and, and under the uh, Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And in some cases, uh, some of those folks uh, hold licenses in all three jurisdictions. So you can, and they they certainly don't always have the same identical suitability requirements. So, uh, so as you can imagine, uh, they need to make sure which hat they're wearing uh, when they give advice that gets picked up under the the DOL's rule when it goes into an effect when it goes into effect next year. So, uh, I think there's three ways to to three key areas to look at the three principal advisors. If assuming you're not already duly re or triple registered, or insurance producers, stock stock brokers, and investment advisors. Uh, so for purposes of discussion, I, I think uh, we won't touch as much on the duty of loyalty, but we're going to look at the suitability requirements under these other laws. I, I think that's a good approach to take, Dwayne. And, uh, we've talked about that before, how everything does seem to focus on uh, the, the duty of loyalty, but the, the prudence aspect of this is really important. So whenever you talk about these three different audiences, maybe we should start with the insurance agents. What sort of right. suitability requirements do they have? Right. Uh, they, they do for the most part. And, and I think uh, if, if you want to say who's going to have the, the, uh, the biggest uphill climb, so to speak, it's going to be on the insurance side because uh, suitability rules have been established for decades uh, under, uh, under FINRA and its predecessor, NASD. Uh, investment advisors have implied suitability requirement because they're already fiduciaries. But on the insurance side, uh, they, there hasn't been as much activity. It actually started uh, around 2003 when 
the state the state insurance regulators have their own association called the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, and they put out model rules that uh, each state is uh, you know can look at and adopt as they f see fit or change. And so, uh, yeah, on the insurance side, the the NAIC adopted a model rule more than 10 years ago, but it was very limited in some respects. It, it only applied initially to uh, senior investors over age 65. Uh, they've gone through a couple iterations. Uh, the most recent was in 2010. And, uh, you know, in looking at this topic and some of the trade press that came out at the time, uh, it almost sounded like it was something brand new where they said, uh, where some of the articles talked about a new suitability requirement for insurance agents separate from uh, their longstanding requirement uh, with variable annuities because, of course, variable annuities were a hybrid, hybrid product of insurance and, and securities regulation that, that had a, a suitability standard. But uh, you might be surprised when you look at the model rule that was adopted and, and it's still in the process of getting or adopted by the NAIC and, and is still in the process of getting adopted by the states. Currently, there, there are about 35 states that have adopted the updated version. But interestingly enough, it models a lot of uh, FINRA's uh, sort of robust suitability standards. They have nine suitability factors. Uh, surprisingly, uh, the NAIC uh, version has 12 suitability factors uh, to consider in any kind of annuity transaction. So they add a couple, but those are mainly centered around what kind of annuity is involved and in, in sort of looking also, in addition to that, uh, whether or not the prospective customer has, uh, what sort of investments do they have and do they have life insurance and other things. So it's almost, it, it, interestingly, it's almost a, a broader inquiry uh, if, if a state has that robust suitability requirement uh, to look at uh, other aspects before you make that recommendation to purchase uh, immediate or deferred annuity or so forth. But again, uh, as we all know, under these suitability requirements, there is no duty of loyalty or requirement to put the client's interests first. But in looking at the Department of Labor rule, it does provide, at least on paper, a set of, uh, of what I'd think are robust factors to consider in determining whether or not this this is a suitable product for the investor. You said there were 12 suitability factors. Can you uh, give us some examples of those? Well, it's uh, as I said, it's, it's pretty similar uh, and almost identical to Fenris suitability rule, although I'm not sure, uh, including myself, if I could always uh, cite all the nine factors off the top of my head. But uh, since I have a list here, I'll throw out a few of them that uh, are uh, overlap with Fenra's rules. So if you're, uh, say, if you've been a broker-dealer that has sold variable annuities in the past, you're going to be fairly well acquainted with uh, uh, the, the, the new insurance requirements. And these include, these overlapping factors include customers' age, risk tolerance, liquidity needs, and tax status. Now, that sounds a lot like an investment advisor too, doesn't it? Uh, but it, as I mentioned, it, it also adds some features about uh, uh, annuities, what is the intended use for the product, and, and looking at other assets. So, uh, however, when you look at the Department, Department of Labor's conflict of interest rule, 
you need to uh, break down the suitability standards out by whether it's covered by the best interest contract exemption uh, that insurance producers might use if, if they're planning to take a commission for their investment recommendation or a prohibited transaction exemption 8424. Now that's the streamlined exemption that's available. It's been out there actually since the late 70s uh, for, in, for insurance companies, uh, but uh, it uh, is now being limited by the Department of Labor to only fixed annuities so, it, so that uh, insurance producers wanting to sell variable annuities or uh, equity indexed annuities would have to use BICE. So uh, what, what I think at this point then, when, uh, when an insurance advisor uh, is going to advise uh, someone who's covered under the uh, Department of Labor's rule, they need to make sure that uh, they single out the four factors that are actually <clears throat> um, cited uh, under the best interest uh, standard. And uh, so, you know, it's almost, I think, Blaine, like you need to have a checklist uh, to make sure you cover all the factors that are required by the Department of Labor and, of course, uh, by the uh, regulatory jurisdiction under which sort of advisor hat you're wearing. In, in this case, we're talking about insurance brokers or insurance producers. So let's turn our attention from the insurance producers and talk about the securities brokers, the, those those individuals being covered by the rules, uh, such as the 2111, that suitability rule. So how about giving us a rundown as to the, how this all impacts them? Well, uh, again, the uh, FINRA had updated its suitability rule and made it much stronger a couple years ago, and, and I know we've talked about that on FI360 blogs and in, in other forums. Uh, so I, I think that will help uh, brokers, uh, stockbrokers, in the context of uh, wanting to meet the prudent standard under ERISA. It doesn't cover it entirely, but it gets it gets there. And and I think the good news, going back to the uh, insurance producers, is let's say you were a stockbroker and you were uh, duly registered as an insurance producer because you sold variable annuities. One thing I forgot to mention is that uh, under the the recent updated NIIC uh, suitability standard, they do have a default. Uh, to uh, FINRA's suitability standards. So if you're operating under FINRA's rules, uh, then you don't have to be concerned. Let's say it's a variable annuity, then you don't have to be concerned with the requirements uh, that are set out uh, in that for suitability requirements under insurance rules. So I think that's a little bit of a benefit because it's, it's a clear harmonization of rules under two different regulatory jurisdictions. <clears throat> But again, then you have to look at uh, the DOL rule, which is a higher standard. And uh, in, in addition, stockbrokers like insurance producer, producers have not had a statutory uh, fiduciary standard to comply with. They are not required legally to act in the clients of interest uh, through a duty, duty of loyalty. So again, that's, that's the main rub. But here we're looking at uh, the suitability requirements. And again, I think a good starting point is matching up the suitability factors between FINRA's Rule 2111 and the best interest contract exemption under the Department of Labor's rule if they decide to use that safe harbor and maybe come up with a, with a, a checklist. 
But again, uh, it's important to look at, uh, in, a, in addition to the broad prudence requirement under, ERIS, under ERISA, is what does the DOL spell out in terms of suitability factors under BICE? And they do mention uh, uh, four criteria, investment objectives, risk tolerance, financial circumstances of the investor, and, and their needs. So those are, when you think about it, those are, are basic, uh, I think, parts of a due diligence process that any advisor should follow, whether you're an investment advisor, a stockbroker, or, or an insurance agent. Uh, but certainly, it's important to remember that, not omit that on your checklist when you're going through your due diligence process. So. Uh, Anyway, uh, I think that uh, gives us uh, a rough sense of what the suitability requirements would be for stockbrokers. Want to round it out with the registered investment advisors? Well, this is the interesting part, I think, Blaine, and I know we've talked about this uh, in the past, but uh, even though investment advisors under the 40 Act or, or fiduciaries, uh, certainly they have a suitability requirement. I know the debate in the past uh, has been about suitability versus fiduciary standard. I think that's just a short, shorthand term of saying, you know, one group is subject to a fiduciary standard, another one is subject to a suitability standard. But in fact, you have to keep in mind that as a fiduciary, you do have that suitability standard as well. So investment advisors have it. It's just the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, has never spelled out in the same amount of detail what a suitability standard means compared to what FINRA has done uh, under Rule 2111. And in fact, in, in 1994, uh, the SEC introduced, and I don't know what the reason was, but they never adopted a suitability rule for investment advisors that they proposed. But anyway, they did list three factors, suitability factors, that are really the same that you'll find under FINRA and uh, insurance suitability rules, uh, financial circumstances and needs, investment objectives, and risk tolerance. Now, I think we know uh, from experience and, and all the investment advisors we work with and talk to that, uh, and financial planners as well, that they certainly don't limit their suitability review to just those three factors. In fact, I think a lot of the best practices, and you can tell me if I'm wrong about this, Blaine, have been uh, based on a lot of the best practices that investment advisors and investment managers have done over the years. That includes liquidity needs, investment time horizon, and so forth. So. Uh, I'm certainly not suggesting that investment advisors, in order to fulfill that uh, duty of uh, care and suitability, only have to be concerned about those uh, three factors. But uh, anyway, that's, that's all they have, uh, at least in terms of what the SEC staff has said uh, is a, a minimum requirement, that they have to make sure, looking at those and other factors, that uh, all of their recommendations are, are suitable uh, to the client's investment objectives and so forth. But I think, again, when you turn to the Department of Labor, Labor's rule in terms of uh, uh, how it impacts investment advisors, they have to be concerned with rollover advice. Uh, I'm not sure if you share the same concern, but I think for some investment advisors who you know, rightly think I'm a fiduciary, so I'm okay with what the Department of Labor does. To a certain extent, that's true. But there's uh, certain changes that have been made by the Department of Labor that could trip up an investment advisor 
who thinks uh, acting the same way they have under the 40 Act is going to uh, keep them in compliance when they give a rollover advice. And that's not necessarily going to be the, the case when it comes to a prospective new client who's seeking rollover advice. Um, so uh, anyway, that, that raises a number of compliance issues if yeah, they're going I, to use that, that safe harbor, that the, the, the level fee exemption that the, that the Department of Labor put out there. I, I do agree with you, Dwayne, that there is a lot there, and, uh, and the rollovers are under intense scrutiny uh, across all of the regulatory authorities. And so, you know, maybe, Dwayne, you could spend a few uh, minutes on that. Can you cite some of the main issues there when it comes to these rollovers? Well, uh, I, I know in the uh, certainly when we when we we're starting to read in the trade press, which sometimes comes comes up with nicknames for, for complicated rules. So, so one of the nicknames is is BICE, right? That's the acronym for Best Interest Contract Exemption. And there's really two parts of BICE. One deals with the the, the uh, advisors who take commissions. The other deals with the level fee advisors, and that's what we're talking about typically in terms of investment advisors, and, and some, some in the press are calling it BICE Lite, L-I-T-E. Uh, so whatever you want to call it, uh, uh, with, for BICE Lite, uh, for the level fee uh, safe harbor, there's actually two types of rollovers and slightly different requirements for them in, in the actual uh, rule that the Department of Labor put out. The first one involves a rollover recommendation from a 401k type plan and a RISA plan to an IRA. And I think it's pretty obvious that uh, the Department of Labor isn't <coughs> anxious to see the, uh, the frequency of rollovers that has happened in the past, given the conflicts of interest. So it's basically requiring the level fee advisor to jump through a number of hoops that ironically aren't even required for the commission-based advisor using the, uh, the other part of the BIC exemption. And in this instance, the level fee advisor has to first de de determine whether the plan sponsor pays any administrative cost for the plan, and, and in addition to looking at other cost differentiations between moving from the plan to the IRA option. And these investment options uh, can include the fees charged by the advisor as well as the level of services under each option. And uh, finally, and this is a critical point that I think is going to come up in uh, any, any sort of investment disputes, arbitrations, and so forth that we see in the future, the advisor needs to document the specific basis for his or her final recommendation on the rollover, including why it was in the client's best interest whether the best interest was to stay uh, put in the plan if that option is available or go into the IRA. And under the second rollover scenario, it would be between uh, switching uh, from one IRA to another one or switching from a brokerage to an advisory account. And the advisor would need to document the reasons why that switch was in the investor's best interest, including the specific services to be provided in connection with, with that change. Dwayne, this is very interesting. So what, what you are saying is then that the, the duty of care as a fiduciary may vary significantly under the new DOL rule, depending on uh, simply how you're registered, whether it's under insurance or securities laws, right? Yes, I, I, that's, that's correct. Uh, I think it, it gets into a little bit of the area of, uh, you know, dotting the I's, crossing the T's and all that, uh, because the bottom line is uh, this is all being driven by 
uh, the Department of Labor's higher standards. So first and foremost, certainly advisors need to look at the duty of care, the prudence requirements under that, but they also need to look at uh, what else is involved. And, and again, they also need to look at the finer points within the DOL rulemaking. And, and one example I would throw out is uh, when you look at all the different safe harbors that the Department of Labor provides, a lot of times they have a requirement to adhere to impartial conduct standards. However, that is not always the same impartial conduct standards under each prohibited transaction exemption. Some of them vary slightly. So again, the advisor needs to look carefully at the actual safe harbor to see uh, what sort of requirements there are for that impartial conduct standard to work. Well, you know, it does sound like what, what we really started uh, with in this podcast, where we talk about the, the best practice seems to be to always operate at that highest standard for all of your accounts. Uh, it seems like that that is the, the most probable way uh, to be compliant, uh, serve the client's best interest, and, uh, and essentially getting some efficiency in your practice probably goes to that idea of having the, the checklist and the standard policies and procedures that just make it absolutely certain that you're dotting the I's and crossing the T's. Is that how we should say it? Yeah, no, I think that's a great way to put it, Blaine. And, and, and again, uh, I think an advisor, once they sort of get comfortable with the new regulatory requirements under the DOL rule, and, the, and if they are looking at checklists that they've drawn up, there's, they're going to see a lot of overlap, and they're going to, I would like to think, they're going to say, what the heck, let me just go with the, the most cost-efficient and compliance-efficient standard which is, and, and it's going to help me uh, cover my bases in the event there is an investment dispute. And, for example, if technically the, uh, uh, the requirements under the, the level fee uh, exemption, such as documenting the basis for the rollover advice, isn't explicitly required under, other, you know, under the other part of BICE, then why not do it? Because you're really going to be documenting your process even better and it'll help you defend uh, again in any uh, disputes that arise. So I, I think in this case, it's going to force advisors wearing all three different hats into the same uh, standard of care. And if it means that they want to continue to make ex ex exceptions for the kinds of products or client arrangements they have that aren't covered under the rule, they might be better off just applying that same standard to all of them. Very interesting, Dwayne. Thank you very much for your insights. And you're welcome.